0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: So one of the most interesting things that i found in my research when looking at how technologies is impacting our notions of work, there's like a couple of different factors at play. The first is there's this psychological um, phenomenon called work devotion, and work devotion has evolved over you know the last couple of decades, where we as a society have collectively decided that there's an appropriate way to show um, how to, to show our commitment to our jobs, and that's through struggle and sacrifice. So when you say, "Oh, I'm so busy," or "I pulled an all nighter," or um, you know, you stay really late, you're the last one to leave, you're the first one to arrive. There's this kind of element of you're you're proving through sacrifice um, your devotion to your job, which is like a real thing that we as a culture have, have decided upon. Now, what's interesting is when you bring technology into the mix, what technology has done is that it's made it very hard to disconnect. It's blurring the lines between being at work and being at home. So now we have this mechanism through which we can constantly be showing work devotion at all hours of the day. And not only are we showing this type of behavior, it's often rewarded.
2: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com.
0: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. Great kitchen, And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com host.
4: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen
1: Yay, my pleasure. I'm so excited.
2: Well, you know, uh, it is really, really cool to have you here. I came across your story by way of our mutual friend, Sarah Peck, who Mm. has consistently been a referral source for amazing guests to the unmistakable creative. Uh, So on that note, uh, I want to start with a question that uh, is a bit different than what I normally start with. And I want to ask you about what your earliest childhood memory or earliest memory of a person who has impacted your life uh, is that has led you to the work that you're doing today.
1: Wow! So much for starting easy. On me. <laughs> uh, what is the earliest, like, just the earliest childhood memory, yeah. or the earliest
2: the earliest childhood memory that you think uh, had a formative impact on where you've ended up in the work that you're doing now?
1: Um, I I think it's my dad. Probably one of my earliest memories that I have is um, sitting on his lap, and you know pushing the keys on his computer. And this was back in the days where it was just like the DOS screen, you know. And I always, um, very close with my father, and he was always a bit of a, a, a science fiction um, geek, I guess you can say. I grew up watching Star Trek with him and uh, reading Asimov. And so he sort of introduced me to the world of possibility. And I think that that perspective of the world of, you know, what's next, what's out there, what's beyond what already exists, just... Gave me such a curiosity for technology and for the way that technology could shape um, our world, and so from that, and then for the longest time um, when I was growing up, watching shows like Star Trek and you know the Star Wars movies together was like a way that we bonded. So it also gave me a good opportunity to spend time with him and to talk to him and to see his perspective on the world. And he's a, an engineer, he's very scientific. And so um, it just, he always, he likes to, you know, push you for, to think deeper and to solve problems. And he always likes to ask these deep thought provoking questions. And so that relationship I think was instrumental because I just grew up loving the possibility of technology and just loving that whole world. So that would probably be the earliest, I guess, collection of, of memories Hmm. that I would have.
2: Why do you think people miss, uh, moments like that in their life? Or do you, do you only recognize something like that looking back in retrospect when I asked you something, or did you realize what was happening at the time?
1: I mean, it's not, I I definitely did not realize, um, at the time. Uh, I sort of realized later just because, you know, when you, you see similarities between, uh, we're very similar in personalities in certain respects. And so when the interests come up, it's obviously, well, like, of course I like technology. You love technology, and we've sort of been talking about it for years and years and years. But I think sometimes it's just hard because, you know, you have a narrative as a person that involves all of these influences and all these inputs. And um, you can only really see the threads that connect all of those independent events to form that story when you look back or maybe look for it. I know during the time, um, you know, Watching Star Trek with my dad was always just like a lovely memory. It's always a, it's a lovely memory that I have of spending quality time together, rides in the car, you know, discussing space and alien technology and all that stuff, and then tracking that forward, realizing that that love of technology um, it makes me so happy. To, to that, let me try that again. That still to this day. When I see something cool, an article about space or new technology or 3D printing or, you know, nanotech or anything, my first instinct is still to pick up the phone and call my dad and say, oh, look what, you know, look what's happening. So I think it's just kind of developed as a habit where he just got me very excited about science and learning and tech. And um, I didn't really realize it at the time, but that influence is very clear in the way that I approach a large variety of the things that I do, not just in my work, but in my life in general.
2: Hmm. Well, I think that makes a a really perfect setup to talk about your actual work. So talk to me about, you know, from watching Star Trek to where you're at today (laughs) and everything that's happened that has led to the work that you're doing and and what it's all about.
1: Yeah. So, um, I wish I could tell you that I had this, like, proper plan, um, you know, and that I sort of very slowly connected the dots. But my my career path was more of a career meander, you know, into <laughs> a, a lot of – I wanted to be everything and anything. Um, I actually wanted to be a vet as a kid um, up until I was in university. And then I volunteered at a vet clinic for a summer <laughs> in high school. And that sort of killed that dream pretty fast. Where I was like, wait a minute, I don't think I want to be in a room with these, like, hissing cats and these poor sick dogs and things like that. So um decided I'd rather be a pet owner rather than <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> rather than the person, you know, that kind of deals with all of that. And so that what happened, what ended up happening was I'd really thought I was going to be a vet. So um, right before I entered university, I, I had this existential crisis where okay, if I don't want to do that anymore, you know, what do I do? Um, so in school I bounced around university. I went to the University of Western Ontario um, in London, Ontario and Canada. And I bounced around a lot. I was in philosophy. I, I took classics. I took psychology. I shifted my majors so many times trying to figure out what I wanted. And I ended up sticking in philosophy and then doing a business program because my father, once again, gave me very wise advice where he said, look, like if you don't know what you want to do, then then study business because business can just underpin any other activity that you want. So whether you go into media or law or whatever, knowing how a business runs is and having that very strategic approach can't hurt. So I went into business. This all has a point. I swear.
4: Um, I
1: went. I went into business and there um, had the fortune to meet who now a very good friend of mine, um, a woman by the name of Nicole Tapscott, and she was in my class. We became friends, and Nicole's father uh, was actually Don Tapscott, who was a technologist and author. You know, ranked one of the top thinkers. Um, globally, about technology and innovation. And through a series of getting to know him, um, I actually worked with him at his think tank. So uh, when I graduated university, I joined his company, which was then called New Paradigm, um, and started working with him um, on white papers around technology. His company did syndicated research programs looking into technology trends. I wrote, you know, white papers about millennials' use of technology and, and politics. Um, and that was just one of those things that, you know, that was such an opportunity that after meeting him and, and being familiar with his work, I just thought was such a, a, a crazy opportunity for me um, as, a, university, uh, as a, a, a recent graduate. And then during that time, I was also the research coordinator on his book, uh, Wikonomics, How Mass Collaboration Changes changes Everything. Um, And then ended up helping him on the research of his book called Grown Up Digital. Um, how the net generation is changing your world. And so through that experience, he was an incredibly influential mentor. He took me under his wing. Um, He was very, very generous with his time and his expertise. And that was the first time that I really understood that you could have a job exploring ideas, which I thought was the coolest thing ever. And that got me into research. Um, and I left new paradigm because I was very interested in the research side of it and joined a market research firm in Toronto called hot specs that was one of um, that was pioneering a lot of very cool tools around online market research you know so online surveys and engagement and they did all sorts of Projects with clients like you know MTV and um, Unilever and, and things like that, looking at how can we use these online tools to engage people better, um, increase responsiveness, brand awareness, all of that sorts, all of that sorts of stuff, which I found interesting, and it gave me a good sense of the the quantitative side of of. of data. So I studied a lot of the thought leadership under John, seeing his theories and his work and everything. And then at Hot Specs, I actually had the chance to work the back end, you know, good old SPSS and looking at queries and looking at data sets and, um, really understanding the story that the numbers tell you, which I found kind of fascinating, um, as well. And then after that, I, uh, I left and I wanted to start my own business. Um, not really quite sure doing what. I just wanted to do a bit more writing and do a bit more consulting. Um, so I left and, uh, Don actually got back in touch with me and he was working on, um, his book. This was actually Economics. So I worked. Yeah. No, sorry, I made a mistake. That was on Grown Up Digital. So I worked on Grown Up Digital, and as a part of working on Grown Up Digital, um, one of my jobs was as a researcher to sort of find um, interview subjects and to you know collect information. And this chapter that I was specifically focused on was about politics. So I ended up getting in touch, this is um, early 2008, with Chris Hughes, who was working on the Obama campaign to interview him for, um, for this book, for Grown Up Digital. And he ended up being super nice and uh, just a really smart, brilliant guy and uh, we really we hit it off we kept in touch after the research of the book and then once the campaign started picking up i just was becoming more and more fascinated at this point i was like full on into tech you know just really researching stuff and reading stuff and blogging a lot and writing on my own time just about all of these things that i was seeing and i sent um chris a message so was I think around June or July um, of 2008, and I said, "Look, I don't know what's going on in Chicago, but you guys are doing something amazing. I would love to come down for a weekend just to see what it's like, just to you know feel feel the energy that I kind of sense building." And so he, I got a response back, and this was really a shot on the dark. I was like, "I don't know if he's going to say yes or anything." And I got a response back, and he said, "Look, look, if you're going to come down, just come down. We need all hands on deck. We can't pay you." Um, but just come on down as a volunteer. And I remember thinking, much like when the opportunity with Dawn came knocking, I remember thinking, this is a really big opportunity. So I very quickly, um, you know, found a roommate on Craigslist in Chicago. Uh, my boyfriend, my husband now, but my boyfriend at the time, packed all of our stuff up in this rental car and we drove all night to meet with Chris in Chicago from Toronto the next morning to kind of hammer out the details. And then right before Labor Day, in late August, I moved to Chicago randomly (laughs) as a Canadian with no idea how the U.S. political system works. I just moved down to Chicago um, and spent the next couple of months as an unpaid volunteer as a part of the digital media team during the 2008 um, campaign for Barack Obama. Um, And that was kind of... An amazing experience. I've never been surrounded by so many smart, talented, motivated people who really believed in a cause. And I wasn't a particularly political person. So it was just a lovely experience and um, made some really good friends there. And having the opportunity to be in Grant Park when uh, during that historic win remains one of the top you know, five moments of, of my life in terms of just things that I'll, I think I'll always remember. So follow along on my, like, weird meandering path. So in Chicago, a couple of weeks later, as uh, right before I wrapped up to go back to Toronto, um, a friend of mine had a house party, and at this house party, I ended up meeting an editor who worked at a publishing house, and I was talking to him about my experiences, and he asked me a bit about my background, and over the course of the evening, um, you know, we were getting to know each other, and he said, look, I think you have some pretty cool insights about the Obama campaign. Would you be interested in writing a book about it? And at first I said, no. I was like, well, I, what do I know? I'm not a political person. I'm not American. I'm not, you know, like I'm not educated about the system at all. I just have my personal experiences. And he said, well, you have this technology background. It could be really, it could be pretty cool. Went back, went back and forth. And then, um, you know, my family and friends just said, you know what, go for it, go for it. So I said, okay, I took the leap. And I, I wrote this book. It was called Yes, We Did, Um an Insider's Look at How Social Media Built the Obama Brand. And I loved writing that book. I got a lot of my friends on the campaign to help me. Um, Scott Thomas, who was the, on the design team, he designed my cover for it. And it was just like such, it was such a, again, I, I go back to the word generous. I think that's been a theme in my career where I've been very fortunate for to have people be so generous with me. Um, just so many people just offered their time and expertise and let me interview them and all of the stuff. And then the book came out in um, 2009. And I started again through a series of like random occurrences to speak about it, to start promoting it. And I um, got invited to speak at Rotman, which is the business school in Toronto, um, about this event. And it just so happened that in the audience was uh, some agents representing a speaker's bureau who saw me speak and came up to me afterwards and said, "Hey, would you like to do this for a living?" And I was like, "Do what for a living? You know, to speak for a living? You mean people? <laughs> people will pay me to talk about the things that I'm interested in?" Wait a minute, <laughs> is this real life? And so um, I said yes, even though I was terrified. I think I like said yes, signed the contract, and then honestly went home and cried because I was just. Was, everything was just kind of happening so fast. Got signed with the Lavin Speakers Bureau, and then very shortly afterwards, started traveling and getting invited to speak all over to share some of my insights about this book. Um, and through that experience, ended up going to Geneva, speaking uh, with the team at the World Economic Forum about online communities and you know lessons learned from the Obama campaign. And again, through a series of amazing serendipitous. Occurrences or circumstances uh, got offered the opportunity to join their team, to join the World Economic Forum's team in Geneva. So I remember um, calling my boyfriend and being like, "So, what do you think about moving to Europe for a while?" And luckily, he said he was like, "What?" And um, he's he's such he's such a good guy. I really I really picked I really lucked out with that one. I'll tell you. But so he was said, "Okay, I'm game for it." And so we packed up our life and we moved to Geneva, where we lived for three years. And during that time, I was the associate director um, of a program that the World Economic Forum has called the Technology Pioneers, which was a super cool program, is a super cool program, where um, the forum is always looking at emerging technologies and entrepreneurs and startups from all over the world who are using technology to improve the state of the world in some shape way, or form. In my portfolio, the 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 entrepreneurs and the tech pioneers that I dealt with were primarily tech companies, um, and so I had the chance over three years to um, really go and learn and meet with um, some of just the brightest tech entrepreneurs and kind of see what they see what they were doing, and then integrate those learnings into some of the you know the research that the forum did as a whole. Um, that was probably just such a not probably, that was actually an incredible, incredible opportunity um, just to be able to learn and meet people and um, hear some of the biggest and best thinkers of the world talk about some of these issues. I think it really broadened my horizons. And as somebody who had been Um, you know, in Canada, North America forever, it was the first time that I I started really looking at the global implications of technology, not just, you know, Canada or the US or um, even just the Western world, but looking at, as I met entrepreneurs, you know, from Asia, as I met entrepreneurs from Africa, really understanding how their vision of technology was influencing um, just our world in general and what the opportunities were there. And so, I did that for three years. And then um, after that, I decided that uh, my contract was up and we didn't want to stay in Switzerland and we weren't ready to come home yet. So um, I once again went home one day and said to my boyfriend, I said, what do you think about going to Paris for a while? And he said, okay. And so we packed up our stuff and we came to Paris and I started working on some research and doing some consulting work. And then a very good friend of mine named Jay Goldman, who's from Toronto, um, I got an email from him one day saying, I just started work with this new company called Click, and I think they're doing some really cool stuff with data. And um, our CEO, this guy named Liram Siegel, is, is thinking about writing a book. And I know you've been doing a lot of writing and you've you know worked on other business books before. Do you want to just come and, and maybe help us with this project? So I said, okay, and so they flew me back to Toronto, and I spent the week with them, and I was just blown away by what their company was doing. It was really, really cool. They were using data in a way that drove their culture, that drove the way they were building productive teams. They had excellent um, you know, job engagement stats, and I was just fascinated by these opportunities and we decided um, to all write a book together. It was myself, Jay, Liram, Siegel, and Aaron Goldstein, the company's CTO. And so, over the course of the next two years, we spent. Um, this would be the Decoded Company. This would be writing um, the Decoded Company. So we spent about you know a year and a half, almost two years talking to entrepreneurs, to companies, to CEOs, to multinationals, looking at organizations that were using technology, in this case data, but instead of looking outwards to decoding um, consumer markets or consumer behavior, we asked the question of what would happen if you um, turned that focus inwards? What could you learn about your own people and your own culture if you were to understand your talent as well as or even better than you understood your customers? And so that book was um, so much fun to write. I was a bit apprehensive, to be honest, about working with so many co-authors, but it ended up being a blast. Uh, And once again, from a generosity perspective, um, Jay who's an incredible designer and um, technologist, and Liram and Aaron who are these incredible CEOs, uh, you know incredible leaders, they built Clickup to be uh, you know it's a multi hundreds of millions it's I think it's like a hundred million dollar business, four hundred people strong, growing and being voted best place to work. It was again a very cool opportunity for me to kind of shadow them and to see how they were doing. And they were so open. I would go and hang out at their offices. I'd get to sit in on meetings. I really saw what it took um, to be on the leadership team. And then I saw um, people who kind of practiced what they preached. So that was a super fun uh, experience for me. And then the book came out, and I was very, very thankful. It did super well. We got great reviews. We had the bestseller list on the New York Times. Um, and then went back to you know, Paris, was still doing consulting, And very uh, fortuitously, my sister, whose name is Rewa Harfouj, she had just finished uh, an extended trip that she was doing around the world. And she had just left her job where she she was leading innovation strategy at a top um, innovation firm in Toronto. And... um, and she and I have just been talking for years about working together. And I said, finally, this time is right. And we started throwing around some ideas, and that's when we started our company, um, Red Thread, which is a think tank. And it's really the kind of the anchor of, of a lot of the work that we do. We do consultancies and we do research projects and we do um, you know, special projects for, for clients. And we started working on a book together. And so that kind of takes us to now where we're working on a book called Hustle and Float, which is all about the technological impacts or the, or or technology's impacts, rather, on our productivity and creativity and how they're impacting the notions of work and, like, the future of work. So I don't know if that made any sense in terms of any sort <laughs> of plan, but, like, it was a very random collection of have events and kind of these, I, I kind of define my career as these moments where I had this opportunity and I had to choose yes or no, you know, and I just said yes even if I wasn't sure or I was afraid or I didn't think I could do it, mm-hmm. and so that kind of got me you know, from step to step to step, and then along the way being supported by an incredibly generous community of people. Um, And then if I was to look back, to bring it back to the question you asked me earlier, the thread that kind of ties all of these experiences together has always been the impact of technology on us as people, the most human element of our behavior, relationships, the way we love, the way we work. So now it's just kind of like a collection of all of those things. I dabble in a lot of things now.
2: Okay. So that raises tons of questions, uh, as you might imagine, it's interesting because, you know, one of the patterns that I have consistently noticed, and I've been thinking a lot about this lately because after six or 700 interviews, your natural tendency is to start looking for patterns in people and and what makes them tick. Mm -hmm. And the one that I keep coming across is the most interesting people never have linear paths to where they're at. Um, it always seems like there's just a bunch of random experiences that tie their work together. Uh, but one thing that I've noticed in the way you described your story and you know, what's led you to where you're at is it seems like you have a really strong awareness for recognizing opportunity when it shows up in your life. Uh, and I'm wondering how that can be developed in anybody's life.
1: Uh, It's actually really, really easy. (laughs) If you have an an opportunity, a choice in front of you, Uh and it scares you out of your mind and you think to yourself, I can't, I don't know how, if you're actually terrified. And what I mean terrified, and I kind of want to underscore that, um, I I know I kind of spoke about this, this, my entire narrative now, you know, in a very sort of casual way. I do want to underscore that each one of these moments (laughs) was paralyzing Terror. I just, I cannot overemphasize enough the anxiety and the fear and the uncertainty and just, you know, the first time somebody asks you to write a book and you think to yourself, who am I to write this book? And the first time somebody tells you, you know, offers you a job abroad and you think, am I going to leave? I've never lived in this foreign country before. I've never done this, you know? So I I think what I've always Done is I've always followed the fear, and it's always been petrifying and terrifying. I think having a good social network and a good tribe of people around you who can be there for you um, is instrumental. But that's really the only way to do it because I I believe now, and now I actively seek out that feeling where if you're not being pushed, then you're not really growing. And each time I had this opportunity. Um, to, it was really not so much an opportunity to advance as much as it was an opportunity to develop. And it pushed me in a lot of different ways, professionally and personally. So if you have an opportunity, whether it's a new job or a new project, and it really scares you, um, you should that should be the path that you should pursue. But I also say that being quite risk-averse in the sense that I will jump, but I'll only jump once I'm sure that I've made as much plans as I could, you know, to make sure that, that that the the risks that I'm taking are um as mitigated as possible, if that makes sense, yeah,
2: yeah, it does it It actually raises a question about managing psychology because I'm sure you know, given the amount of entrepreneurs you're exposed to and how much you hear about you know uh, this aspect of the startup world, like the mental health thing. Uh, I'm curious, you know, from the people that you're around and you've been exposed to from all the various jobs that you've worked at, um, what are the lessons that you've taken away from managing psychology, navigating periods of uncertainty, anxiety, and fear from those people? And like, what is it that enables them to do it at the level that they do?
1: I think the most important thing that I've learned is that to just kind of accept that if you are going to live an unconventional life or if you are going to start a business or if you are going to take risks, right, there's going to always be an uncertainty, an unknown. And sometimes a lot of my personal struggle came with if I'm like fighting against something or I don't know something, it's almost like the assumption like things would be so much better if I didn't have this uncertainty. And one of the things that I've learned from a lot of the people in my life, a lot of the mentors that I've had is just that if you just embrace that Uncertainty is a constant. There's always going to be things that you don't know. And it's just like a regular part of living this life the trade off for, for having autonomy, the trade off for being able to pursue interesting projects. Because there's always trade offs, you know? People will look at your life and they'll say, you get to control your own time, you work for yourself, all of this stuff. And then the flip side to that is, yeah, I have to hunt my own projects, I have to do my own client management. I, do you know what I mean? So, like, there's always a, a flip side to every perk that you get. And for me, I've just learned that this uncertainty and the feelings that I have are these, like, one, they're kind of a temporary state. But two, uncertainty is just the name of the game. And I've made my peace with that. So I don't have this expectation, like, I would only be so happy if everything in my life was serene. I'm actually learning that I can be serene even if everything in my life is not. And that's... From like a meditation perspective, and from a you know a Buddhist philosophy perspective, has been very helpful because, uh, and I don't mind admitting this, I am very prone to worrying, very (laughs) prone to like anxiety, anxious thoughts, you know, like what if, what if, what if, worst case scenarioing, like all of these types of things. And what I've learned is I can choose my own state of mind, even if everything around me is unknown. That I can choose to just be calm. And that has been the most powerful thing because I've realized that nothing's ever going to be perfect. You know, There's always going to be something. There's always going to be an uncertainty. And even if there is an uncertainty and you're in a period of calm at any given time, that calm can disappear. So the only thing that you can really be sure of is your own approach, is your own reaction to these events. And that's not to say that I'm perfect because I still slip all the time. I will still find myself getting caught up in these like little anxiety cyclones, you know, and I have to make an effort to bring myself back and say, okay, none of these things have happened yet. You know, this is just a part of the game and really trying to keep myself in that moment. And that's a lesson that I've learned from a lot of the people who have, um, who have seemed to, who have really done a much better job than I in terms of managing that psychology. Mm -hmm.
3: They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
4: A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times.
2: uh, from your time working uh, as a volunteer for the Obama campaign,
1: I learned that it's not about the message that you want to tell. It's about what the most meaningful message is for the for them. What is the message that needs to connect for them? And the best example I can give you of this is during the campaign when you in two thousand and eight when you signed up, you were asked to specify a lot of your interests. You know, are you interested in healthcare, or foreign policy, or Education or whatever it was, and that um, understanding—you know—that was when originally when they were doing the micro targeting and the very um, the customized content for people, which was quite a new thing, kind of in in 2008 in this context. And so that determined the type of emails that you got and the subjects that were covered, and that was really important because you know the campaign might have had ten messages that they maybe wanted to get out there about a bunch of different topics. But if you were really interested about foreign policy, then we as the campaign needed to make sure that everything that we spoke to about the campaign was wrapped up in this thing that was very relevant and very meaningful and interesting to you. And I think you hear, you to extend that to a broader, whether it's an entrepreneurial message or whether it's a personal message, you know, that you're getting out. And when I advise and I mentor startups here, a lot of the times they want to tell me, you know, what's so great about their technology instead of focusing on, you know, what value are people going to get, you know, what's the benefit to them? What is, how are you serving people instead of you just telling me how great your app is? Why don't you tell me about how it's going to solve, what problem is it going to solve for me or what, you know, how's it going to make my life easier? And it's almost shifting to kind of that serving mentality where it's not about speaking it's not about what you have to say it's about listening to what they need and then responding to that need
2: so i want to ask you one more question about all the people and the mentors that you've been exposed to and people that you've worked with and collaborated with um what have you learned about leadership and peak performance and success at the highest levels from all these people
1: um, the ones that I've most admired have, I'm trying to think of like, what's something original that you like, you haven't heard a million times, like, <laughs> you know, like but really like they delegate and they, you know, they, they, they give back and they're very generous with their time. But when I think about peak performance, I actually, um, have learned that one of the most important things is to be very realistic about what you can do within a day and that it's better for you to be. Realistic with yourself and get that stuff done than it is to overestimate what you think you can do and then constantly feel like you're behind. And maybe that goes back to the psychology. Um, and so in my own work, I've, I've, I call it almost like lowering the lowest common denominator, lowering the, your, The expectations that I have on myself sometimes, because I'll wake up and I'll say, Oh, I, I need to do 15 things today. But the reality is I'm going to get to three. So I've gotten very, very good at saying to myself, like, how much time is this realistically going to take? And then just doing those things. Um, because ultimately, and Don said this to me years and years ago, he said, you know, it's a marathon and you can't just sprint. You can't just run at full speed all the time, even though that's what culture... Dictates for us to do right now, and that's very relevant in the the work that I'm doing now for husband Float, Is that we get all these messages about how we need to be working harder and longer, and all of this, and in reality, we're not doing enough to promote you know rest. So it's seeing him take the time to disconnect, and he was one of the hardest working people that I know. But seeing him take the time to disconnect and to rest and to rejuvenate, um, that I think helped me focus on the balance in my own life. Um and as well the the people like when I look at Lee, for example, a super successful, Liram Siegel, super successful entrepreneur, he still has a very good close network of friends. He he prioritizes those relationships in his life. And he always makes time for me when I have a question or if I want to call him or email him. And that kind of shows me how important it is to be sort of down to earth and to be connected to the people in your life that matter. Um and then, yeah, I, I think ultimately, the more I see people at different stages of their career, too, the more I realize like how important your health is and how nothing matters if your health goes and um I know it sounds a little kind of cliche, but honestly, for somebody who I would consider myself to be somebody that could, if, if left to their own devices, you know, could work from morning to night sometimes and forget to eat, which is not a good thing. But, you know, you get into these zones and you're writing and all of that to, to force myself to say, stop and to recover and to rest as difficult as that might be. That's been one of the best tricks that I've learned in terms of being able to kind of manage my own health.
2: In all of this time, um, Have you ever had any moments where you felt all was lost, like you were just at rock bottom?
1: All the time. (laughs) Honestly, all the time, all the time. I mean, my poor friends, like I will call them sometimes and just be like, what am I doing with my life? You know, like what is the meaning of it all? What am I going to do? Um, and actually the, the concept for hustle and float came across from one of those moments where, um, I had come back after decoded was launched and released and I was feeling a bit restless because I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to work on next. And, um, I'll tell you the story because it's kind of funny. I was on Tumblr because, you know, what do you do when you're restless and, and bored? You, you go to the internet. And I found this uh, this image came up in my feed that had the, these words that said, you have the same number of hours in a day as Beyonce. Do you know this image? Do you know what I'm talking about? That no, one? No, but
2: it sounds hilarious.
1: Yeah. So it says you have the same number of days and you you had same number of hours in a day as Beyonce. And for some reason, I just totally lost it. Like it just sent me off the deep end. And I remember calling my sister, Riwa, on FaceTime and just being like, my life has been a failure. Look at all the things Beyonce has accomplished. And like, (laughs) she's doing all of this stuff. And like, here I am. It's Tuesday. It's 3 p.m. I'm on Tumblr. Like, what am I even doing? And then that kind of sparked. A conversation around, okay, let's stop and let's think about what's going on here. Where, Why do you feel this pressure to, to be constantly working, constantly producing, constantly doing stuff? And um, that ended up raising a whole set of other questions about our notions of work and our notions of productivity and our self-identity and our self-worth and the image that we get in the media and so now, the last couple of months that we've been researching this, it's been fascinating because I didn't realize how much I was being influenced by all of these cultural messages around work. Um, and so now, I'm not so hard on myself, for the most part. There's still times where, you know, like... You come up with a great idea, and then you Google it, and like somebody has done it a thousand times better than you ever could. Or sometimes I go on Amazon and I'm like, look at all these books. What could I possibly <laughs> add to the conversation? You know, everything that has been said that needs to be said has probably been said. Um, especially when you look at like Peter Drucker, and it's like Peter Drucker just thought of everything. Like we should all just pack up and go home because he just said it all. You know. <laughs> um, and so it's kind of it's 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 always I, I think it's just a natural part of being a creative, which is. I think being a creative means that you're you're fundamentally battling your own inner demons, your own the own sensor in your brain that is always challenging you as to who are you to create this, to put this out, who are you to, you know, to to, to take people's time with your ideas. And so writing, you know, is an especially hard, at least for me, I find it very challenging because sometimes I'm working through not just the material, but I'm working through creative block and insecurity. And what if people hate it? And what if, um, you know, th- there's a big flaw in my thesis that I'm not seeing? What if there's a mistake? You know, you're kind of going, again, the anxiety brain, what if, what if, what if? And so I find that it takes a lot of Um, effort to come out of that back into a zone of just recognizing, again, that it's like this ebb and flow of everything around you and that you need to come back to center. So I've just recognized that I'm not perfect. I'm not going to be Zen always, but I'm a bit more forgiving of myself when I kind of go off the deep end that I just brush myself off and kind of try to come back to center.
2: Okay, cool. That raises uh, a couple last questions, but you know, I, I want to talk specifically about your research and about what you found. Are the implications of technology uh, from you know the cultural messages that we receive and how that impacts our productivity and creativity? Which I realize is a big question.
1: So, one of the most interesting things that I found in my research when looking at how technology is impacting our notions of work, there's like a couple of different factors at play. The first is there's this psychological um, phenomenon called work devotion, and work devotion has evolved over you know the last couple of decades, where we as a society have collectively decided that there's an appropriate way to show um, how to, to show our commitment to our jobs, and that's through struggle and sacrifice. So when you say, "Oh, I'm so busy," or "I pulled an all nighter," or um, you know, you stay really late, you're the last one to leave, you're the first one to arrive. There's this kind of element of you're you're proving through sacrifice. Um, your devotion to your job which is like a real thing that we as a culture have have decided upon now what's interesting is when you bring technology into the mix what technology has done is that it's made it very hard to disconnect it's blurring the lines between being at work and being at home so now we have this mechanism through which we can constantly be showing work devotion at all hours of the day and not only are we showing this type of behavior it's often rewarded think of you know if you have colleagues if you work in a traditional job saying you have colleagues that are sending emails on the weekends or really late at night or really early in the morning or the expectation that we have to always be responsive and always be on. That's kind of the first part. The second part is that productivity as a concept Is actually has actually evolved now from being something that used to be applied to a collective, so managing a large scale group of people, a workforce, and it's now become quite individualized. Where when you look at personal productivity, life hacking, quantum self, what we have done is we have transferred the responsibility for us to be productive, quote unquote, you know, to the individual. So you have these weird cultural rituals that we're all engaging in, which is we're all trying to prove to each other that we deserve to, you know, we deserve our promotions and our jobs. We deserve what we have because we work so hard. And I can talk to you for hours unpackaging where that comes from, you know, the American dream, the 2008 financial crisis, um, the, the, the rise of um, knowledge work, you know, all of these things that have impacted this legacy that we carry, this baggage about work. And then you have this this tech, technological advancements where not only do you have these tools that, that connect us all the time, but you also have these mythological, you know, these mythological, like people, figures, these mythological figures where we're hearing in the news, for example, you know, Marissa Mayer, when she was at Google, was working 130 hours a week. Jack Dorsey only sleeps four hours a night. Um, if you pick up any uh, any uh, issue of Fast Company, I, I did a, a quick Google search when I, for, uh, for some of this research a couple of weeks ago. And very quickly, it was like, secrets of the most productive people, how to get more done. HBR had an article about, you know, how to get more stuff done. So not only are we constantly connected, locked into these behaviors around some of our work, now incapable of making the separation, we're also getting bombarded by startup culture, by the mythology of people, you know, that we really admire, the, the tech entrepreneurs to be, to be always working always on. You know, when Elon Musk says he's been working 100 plus hours a week for the last 15 years, bringing it all the way back to the story of my meltdown, when you have the same amount of hours in the day as Beyonce, yeah. what messages, what we're essentially telling people is you're responsible for your own success, which in a lot of cases is and is not true. You know, there are a lot of things kind of outside of your, outside of your control, your, your, your access to education, your socioeconomic status. There's a, you know, there's a lot of variables there. But we're telling people that, you know, to be successful, we culturally believe that you have to work hard And that working hard is your responsibility and your success is actually directly linked to the amount of effort you put in. So if you fail, then that's actually because you're not working hard enough. And technology and being always connected combined with when you look at digital culture of the over curation and like a lot of the fakeness that we see on social media we, what ends up happening is we're holding people to this very unrealistic expectation of what work-life balance is supposed to be when in reality people are working longer, they're getting sicker, and it's, they're not actually earning more money for the increased hours that they're working. So all of that to kind of say that technology has been an incredibly powerful um, tool, but that has amplified a lot of the beliefs that we've carried up into this point. And unfortunately, because it's just so embedded in our daily lives, I think it's making it harder and harder for people to make those separations, and it's feeding a lot of those psychological narratives around work. And I believe, and, you know, my co-author, my sister, Riva, and I believe that if we don't start separating and addressing some of these underlying psychological triggers, then all of this discussion around the future of work is that's focused on technology and new policies and progressive, you know, company, flex time, none of that's actually going to matter because the real pressure is coming from our own sense of self-identity.
2: Okay, that was amazing and epic, and it raises so many more questions. Uh, what are the implications of all of this for our relationships with other people?
1: I think, I mean, that's, that's the big question. I wish I'd tell you I had all the answers, but that (laughs) is the question because I think that, um, I was reading an article in the Washington post the other day that was talking about how they're finding that some, some negative, um impacts of being so connected to so many people because from an evolutionary perspective you know dunbar's number right we were mm-hmm. originally made these connections of 150 to 200 people and what does it mean for our brains that now we're connected to thousands and thousands of people i think what we're seeing is we're seeing um, a lot of new different types of relationships emerge that we're still trying to define. I think eventually you're going to see, at least for me personally, I, I find I have like a love-hate relationship with social media where I love being connected, but sometimes I hate all of the information. And research has shown that um, from a psychological perspective, people tend to overestimate the amount of fun that other people are having on social media and underestimate the positives, like of how much they're having fun in their own life. So everyone thinks that everyone's having more fun than them on social media, <laughs> which I thought was so sad, but kind of true, you know? So, yeah. um, so I, I think, I mean, I don't know, really the, the, the short answer is that's what I'm researching right now. And I'm okay. looking at how do some of these beliefs translate into not just our relationships with other people, but fundamentally our relationships with ourselves. Because if, you know, in, in looking at my own life, like being somebody who has, Full control of her time, where is this pressure? Like, why do I feel guilty if if I, you know, take a Thursday afternoon off, for example? Like, where does that come from? And to really track it back and to peel back the layers and to and to look at the behaviors, to look at the language that the people around me use, the things that have been that are rewarded in our society. I think for me the biggest picture is like, how can we? make peace with some of this baggage that we've brought with us to this new world in order to be able to get to a stage where um, you know, that's okay. And to bring it back to Beyonce because it always comes back <laughs> to Beyonce. I will tell you that so what happened to go back, so I have was I was having this this flip out, right? I was freaking out about Beyonce. So my sister who is always my my anchor during these emotional storms, she just said, Well, let's just research everything we can about Beyonce and let's just like figure out how she does what she does. Maybe we can learn something. If you can't beat them, join them type of thing. And we actually found, um, after, first of all, what at the first glance, like the research just made us feel worse because she was just like this prolific. She is known for having a work ethic and Harvard Business School actually has a, a case study about her Business, about her work ethic and how hard she works and all of this stuff. So at first I was like, I'm not sure. I think this is going to backfire. It's just making me feel worse. But then we found an article that in 2011, um, Beyonce actually started feeling um, burnt out, and she took a year off. And in the article, she was quoted as saying things like, you know, I had to take a year off for my mental health. I was going from show to show. I didn't know what city I was in. I was getting I was going to award shows, receiving recognition for my work, and then not even knowing, like not even being present, just thinking about the next and the next and the next. And that was a a really big aha moment for me because I thought to myself, if culturally speaking, Beyonce, who's one of the you know 100 most influential people, who is a role model for creatives, for business people, for women, um, if she, who has all the markers of success, who has accomplished everything that we're trying to achieve, if she is the standard, and she herself cannot maintain that standard, if she is struggling, then clearly there's something wrong with the ideals. If, if, if our, you know, these figures are, are very deeply flawed and if she can't keep up, then what does that say? Not about us. Then the problem isn't about us and the problems with the system. So that's kind of what I'm trying to figure out is how does our relationship change now? And where do we go moving forward in relationship to the system, to the school of thought, where, we live in a world where if you look at the language that we use and what gets rewarded, like we, we idolize creativity as being the most powerful thing. You know, Time Magazine ranked in 2014 creativity, um, the majority of people, 94% rank creativity as more important than intelligence, empathy and beauty. So we idolize creativity, you know, Steve Jobs and and these creative geniuses, but really we worship productivity. We worship getting things done and life hacking and doing all those things. And I think that those two systems cannot coexist the way that they have been doing for up until now, because it's not working. So where do we go from here and how do we change and how do we adapt in a way that as creatives, we can thrive in a world and where the systems are in place for people like us, not against us because of these arbitrary cultural baggage that has nothing to do with the way things are anymore.
2: Wow. Um, this is like just riveting and jaw dropping to me because I I can't help but agree with so much of what you say, you know, like despite all the things I've gotten to do anytime I log into Facebook, I had to install the newsfeed obliterator because every single time I'm like somebody else is always up to something that seems more epic than anything that I've ever done. (laughs) Yes. Uh, so I have one, sort of final question um, around this. What are the things that we can start doing right away to stop feeding the psychological triggers that are created by all of this? Like, what can what changes can we make in our own lives uh, right away to actually not be driven into this state of panic and anxiety on a constant basis?
1: I mean, the, as I say, the first step in, in fixing a problem is recognizing there is one. I think that's probably just for me personally. And it's, what's so funny is I find myself studying this issue and saying all of this to you. And then I find myself sending text messages to my sister being like, God, I feel so unproductive or I feel, you know, <laughs> so it's, it's, it's. I'm like, it's a psychological problem that we are all, it's like, we're not even aware of these belief systems. So one of the things that we've been doing, um, is acting as kind of mirrors for each other and asking why always ask yourself if you feel like, you know, if somebody asks you, what did you do on the weekend? And you say, oh, well, I, you know, I I feel so guilty. I had a really unproductive weekend or, oh, I just, I was lazy. I didn't do anything. It's like, kind of ask yourself like, why? Um, one of the best things that I could recommend is that was very helpful to me in this is Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've done those programs. The, the, it's a writing program. Um, the questions that she asks around your attitudes around, I think when, I don't remember the exact chapter, but there's one chapter where she, where she asks a lot of questions about, you know, your attitudes about work, your attitudes about money. And she makes you do one of these exercises where you kind of, where you kind of, deep dive into your own memories and you figure out what are the big things that you've learned along the way that shaped your views about who you are today. Was it, you know, being rewarded as a kid for doing a good job? Was it, um, you know what I mean? Like what was it? What, where did your own personal beliefs about work come about? Because I, one of the interesting things that I read about cognitive bias, for example, is that if you fundamentally believe in your heart, that hard work is the only way that you're going to get ahead You know, from a neuroscience perspective, your brain will sometimes like not even let you see more efficient ways of doing something because a more efficient way of doing something would go against your belief of hard work and something in you needs to struggle and needs to work that hard in order to fulfill that specific belief system.
2: Wow, That's
1: where it gets really crazy.
2: So I'll tell you a story about something very related to that. I have a friend who's wanting to start a subscription-based business of some sort. And, uh, you know, we'd been going through all the different things, like I'm advising him on what he should do. And then he tells me yesterday, he said, yeah, I've got like 10 people who say that, you know, they'll be my first customers. And I was like, dude, why the hell are you doing Facebook ads and building a landing page? I said, set up a PayPal button, get them to pay and start delivering the product. Mm -hmm. I'm like, you'll figure out the rest of it later. And like that never occurred to either of us the entire (laughs) time.
1: Yeah, I'm going to kind of like riff and I know I don't have a lot of time, but I'm just going to riff Um, very quickly. One of the things that I'm super interested in is kind of like, you know, quantum physics and I'm very much a lay person at this. So, uh, but the whole concept of it is quite fascinating because what we're learning is that, um, that your brain, your beliefs actually have such an important element on how you view the world. And what happens is that if you have a belief in your brain about something, whether it's yourself, whether it's, you know, people around you, success, whatever, your brain will kind of recognize that that becomes truth to your brain. And then any information that comes your way that might be against that belief, your brain will actively filter it out. So, if, for example, from a financial um, perspective, this is one of the examples th- that I read about. If, for example, you believe that your worth at your organization, or that your, you know, your, you're never that the work that you're doing is 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 never going to be worth more than, say, like hundred thousand dollars, or two hundred thousand dollars, or even fifty thousand dollars, whatever that number is, everyone actually has a number. And uh, my friends and I will will try to push each other on that number sometimes to say, you know, like, can you imagine, you know, making this much or this much or this much? And somebody will always have a point where they can't imagine making you know, more than that. So if you believe you're $50,000, which is the example that this article I read used, then if that's what you believe you're worth, then actually other opportunities that come your way, other, um, whether it's a business opportunity or whether it's like a new job or whether it's a lateral move to another, whatever, like your brain will not only like not let you see that, but will actively stop you from pursuing it. And so this is why it's so important to think about like what is the OS that's running all the apps, you know, of ourselves. Like what is, what are the beliefs that are embedded inside of our psyche in terms about how we view work, how we view creativity. If you believe, for example, that artists have to suffer for their work, maybe you'll never think about making an Amazon Kindle single or you'll, do you know what I mean? Like you'll spend, you might spend your whole life doing something traditionally because you feel in your heart of hearts, like your psychological belief is that's the way it has to be in order for me to move move ahead. Mm-hmm. So when you unpackage that when you think of everything especially in North America around hard work and the American dream and if you just, you know, you just have to go for it, especially this entrepreneur culture of, you know, strapping and 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 the sweat, blood and tears of like building up a business, that in itself implies a lot of things about what we think the role of the individual is and how much responsibility we take on ourselves. And those are the conversations that I want to have. So to bring it back to what can you do right now, I would start having these conversations. Companies, instead of having conversations about, you know, how do we introduce flex time or how do we, um, you know, how do I meditate more or how do I take more breaks? It's like the problem isn't the tools. When I started researching all of this, there's so many solutions, but all of the solutions, you know, getting things done or take a t- take a day off work or rest, none of those matter if they don't fit with your vision of the underlying beliefs that drive you. You're not there are companies that introduce progressive policies and employees don't take advantage of them because it doesn't resonate with their own, you know, cultural views around work. So, I would say start having these conversations when you have a friend who you call and they always say, "Oh, I'm so busy." Like, ask them, why? Why are you so busy? Why, you know, what, what does being busy mean? Like, really having these deep conversations around some of these words that we have been using that we carry around now is like a badge of honor. I think that would be a great first step to think about how we as a culture can kind of heal ourselves from some of this this disorder that we have around overwork.
2: So I have two final questions for you. Um, mm-hmm. And I normally don't ask this question, but I've wanted to for a long time, and I'm going to ask it at the recommendation of my business partner. What is one piece of art, book, music, uh, movie, or anything else that has deeply influenced and informed your life?
1: Um, One of my favorites that I always go back to is there's a book um, by a German philosopher called uh, Rainier Maria Rilke, and it's called Letters to a Young Poet. Um, and I have a tattered, tattered copy um, of (laughs) that I always kind of have with me. It's a series of letters that that he wrote to an apprentice. And if you're a creative, if you're a writer or an artist or anything like that, he's so relatable and down to earth. And the advice that he gives around creativity and around living with uncertainty um, is just, I always find it very comforting. I'm going to paraphrase and totally butcher this quote, but you should definitely look it up. But he has this Uh, quote where he says that sometimes it's not when when you're, when you're, when you have a lot of questions that it's not always possible to have the answer. Sometimes you have to live the questions themselves and be okay with living the questions themselves until you naturally move into an answer. Whenever I'm feeling, you know, very anxious about not knowing something, I remind myself of that. Um, From a creative, um, from like a creativity perspective, one of my favorite things has been the book S by J.J. Abrams. It was just such an amazing piece of metafiction. I don't know if you've seen it or if you have to buy the physical copy. You cannot buy like the Kindle copy, buy the physical copy. It's incredible. It's this like multi-layered story. The book has margin notes and it has inserts and it just blew my mind. And I find that it helped me think about a lot of the work that I do differently just because he was, it was such a creative presentation of an idea that I find it just sparked a lot of inspiration. Um, yeah, that would that would kind of be it. Those two things I, I find, at least more recently, have I've kind of been gravitating towards a lot.
2: Awesome. Well, I have one last question, which is how we finish <laughs> all our interviews at The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: I think it's not apologizing for what you are, whether it's your vulnerabilities or your shortcomings. I think it's just being unapologetic about what you have to bring to the world. And um, going back to the messages that we hear from culture, a lot of the time, you know, there's a lot of, People are always telling you what you should be doing and how you should be living and things, you know, the, the top tips from people. And then sometimes you just have to take a step back and kind of say, you know what, like this is me and my flawed glory. And I'm going to be okay with that for a while, because I actually think that in order to do your best work, you have to take some pressure off of yourself. And the only way to do that is to stop letting anybody else's expectations of who you are or how you work or the work that you produce. That's something that's going to be uniquely yours. Um, and the only way to find that unique voice is to just fully embrace the freakouts and the meltdowns and the <laughs> calling your sister from bed on Tuesday at 3 p.m. and just being like, you know what, this is I'm messy and I'm fine with it. And I, you know, behind every curated Instagram photo of a cappuccino and like a a flower on some hipster cafe, like there's a person who is asking a lot of questions and who's feeling uncertain and like that's okay. And just we should be telling each other more, you know, that's okay.
2: This has been awesome. Uh, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with our listeners. Uh, I think you're going to be a big hit with them.
1: I appreciate it. Thank you so much for the opportunity and a big thank you to Sarah for connecting us.
2: Yeah, and for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. If you like what you heard, the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative.